Shut up and sit down. Welcome. Welcome back to In the Context of Empire. I'm John Lancaster, and as always, I'm joined here with Matt McKenna. Matt, how is everything on your end? It's good, John. It's good to have you back. I had to record a few episodes without you, or a couple episodes, and I we managed to make it through, but it's always better to have the two co-hosts on. And today we're joined by a very special guest that we're very excited to speak with. Yes, today we are very excited to welcome on the podcast Dr. John Kazvinian. He's an historian and the executive director of the Middle East Center at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also the author of Untapped, The Scramble for Africa's Oil, and also his most recent book, America and Iran, A History from 1720 to the Present. Uh, John, thank you so much for taking the time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time to have me. So, John, we wanted to ask, you know, for many folks, uh, the relationship between Iran and the United States became obvious last year with the assassination of Soleimani. And perhaps those who are more historically inclined might go back to the seven, uh, 1979 um, Islamic Revolution uh, or even the coup. We wanted to ask two questions, really. One, can you give us a little bit of your own background and what got you interested in this relationship um, that far precedes these events? Yeah, sure. That's a, a great question. Um, so I'm a historian by training, um, although I've always been a bit, uh, a bit of a sort of uh, mixed feelings about uh, whether I would describe myself as a historian by profession. Uh, so I did a PhD in history, but I, I kind of went into journalism instead for a while. I didn't really pursue the tra- traditional tenure track historical path uh, for various reasons. Just didn't really want to. Uh, honestly, uh, I was more interested in reaching a broader audience and kind of engaging with what I think makes history really interesting. Uh, we're not getting sort of overly academic about it. Um, so my first book was a work of journalism. But for this one, I kind of wanted to come back to history. Um, but tell the story in a way that I think would be engaging for a broad uh, general audience, which is really, really important to me. Um, I am Iranian by background. I was born in Iran. I was one year old when we left the country. Uh, we moved to the UK. Uh, so I grew up just outside London. And, and in high school, we moved to Los Angeles. And so, I, you know, back to the UK for grad school. So I bounced around a fair amount. But Iran was one of those topics I didn't always really want to get into. But uh, I think eventually it sort of maybe finds you. <laughs> so um, that's kind of why I got interested in this. And I thought, you know, I want to do this kind of big comprehensive history of US-Iran relations. Um, not because I think it hasn't been done, but because I thought, um, and it's been done very well, but I thought there were ways in which it could be done better. Um, James Bill wrote a fantastic history of US-Iran relations at the end of the 1980s. Uh, but I was trying to get beyond, as you were saying, I was trying to get beyond some of the uh, traditional uh, you know, kind of signposts uh, of this relationship. I think when we talk about U.S.-Iran relations, here's what I think most people are at least somewhat aware of, uh, most people listening to your podcast, let's say. Uh, you know, U.S. and Iran have a very bad relationship. They, If they have any relationship at all, you know, arguably they don't, you know, they obviously they broke off ties in April of 1980. Um, and so there's a natural desire, I think, to, to, call, to, to call upon the historian to say, well, tell us how it all went wrong. Tell us how we got here. Tell us whose fault it is. And I think that's a really unfortunate way of approaching history. And you guys, I know you're both people who love history and most of your, your audience loves history. So I don't, maybe I, maybe I don't need to say this, but history is so much richer and more interesting than, than a blame game. But, I'm, you know, it's not a weapon to kind of hit your opponent with. 
Um, I think what actually, but, but it's, it's interesting because in a way that is such a symptom of U.S.-Iran relations. Everything that has to do with the U.S. and Iran is so divisive and hostile that even history becomes a weapon. Um, and I wanted to get away from that a little bit because, yeah, there are these two major events that you alluded to. One of them in 1979, the hostage crisis, when the U.S. embassy was overrun by radicalized students in Tehran in the midst of a revolution against the pro-American Shah. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the embassy was taken and, of course, precipitated a, more than a year of this kind of hostage crisis that really, you know, was a traumatic event for modern modern American history, but also really, uh, you know, introduced Americans, I guess, if you can put it that way, to Iran in the worst possible way. Um and then the other, you know, the other one, is, of course, is the 1953 coup d'état uh, against uh, Mohammad Mossadegh, a very popular prime minister in Iran who was overthrown in a, in a violent coup sponsored, backed to one degree or another, depending on how you want to look at it, by the CIA. Um, which, in many ways, these are two kind of original sins. You know, if you if you are inclined to, you know, and I have some, you know, I, I appreciate kind of your own uh, political orientation, which you're very kind of open about on this show. But if you're if you're inclined to kind of blame or criticize U.S. foreign policy, you tend to focus on the 1953 coup. If you're inclined to want to blame the Islamic Republic of Iran, you tend to focus more on the 1979 hostage crisis. And you get into this kind of blame, who started it? No, you started it. No, you started it. And, you know, and I just think, like, let's not do history like that. When you start to go way back and take a much deeper, longer approach, you realize that, first of all, you know, a lot of things. One is... And I didn't. I didn't know what I was going to get into when I started doing the research. But I thought, you know, one of the things I discovered was, first of all, very simple. This relationship is so much more positive and full of mutual admiration and fascination, and even a kind of mutual idealization. So warm and positive for so much of its history, for hundreds of years. Um, and the last forty years is really not a representation of what this relationship is all about. You know, but I also think that when you go back before 1953 and 79, you realize that um, just how much, uh, well, maybe I should stop there because I feel like I, I've answered your basic question because I could get into a whole other separate point. But let me, let me, I'll stop there and I'll let you ask the questions. Well, John, the name of the show is In the Context of Empire. So uh, we love all the context that you can give. And I like that you said that history is not a blame game. Uh, you know, it's not to be wielded as a weapon. But at the same time, you know, if we want to understand how things got to be the way they are, we do need that long context that you have done such a great job in explaining in your new book, America and, I and Iran, and uh, which I'm trying to tear through. It's, it's a long book, but it's actually very easy to read, and it's, it's compelling. Like, uh, it's a page turner, or in my case, the uh, <laughs> uh, swiping right as I go through the Kindle book. But it's excellent, and I highly recommend it to everybody. Yeah. Just so you know, the book was originally twice as long, so you can thank, thank the publisher. The first draft was 1,300 pages, and I've managed to get it down under 600 pages. So, Well, uh, uh, definitely recommend it to everyone out there. Uh, and before we go forward, you know, John and I are, Jonathan Lancaster, my co-host here, are always talking about the importance of language and how language will often reinforce power dynamics if you're not careful. And something I found interesting is you make it a point to talk about this terminology that you use in the book. Uh, and that's between the word Persian and the word Iranian, Iran and Persia. Uh, can you talk about the history of those words, how they've been used by Iranians themselves versus how they're used by outside powers and why you made the choice you did in the way that you use those two words in the book? 
Yeah, I struggled a lot with this decision because I think probably the most quote unquote correct way to do this and the way that I think most most academics have moved, the direction most academics have moved in in recent years is to just use Iran uh, across the board because Persia is not a really a, the right term. Um, and I'll say a little bit about why I chose that, but but maybe I should just contextualize the difference. I, you, you get this question a lot, you know, <laughs> well, what, what's the difference? You know, why, you know, because a lot, it's so interesting. We could spend a lot of time just on this because so many Iranians in the U.S. call themselves Persian. I don't do that. Uh, I don't like to do that. I don't. I understand why people do that because it sounds more exotic and kind of, um, you know, just just positive. It has this kind of like positive quality to it, this kind of Oriental kind of quality to it that's, you know, seems somehow more harmless than Iran, which has this like threatening, you know, menacing kind of quality. You know, I think you know a lot of that is self perpetuating. But you know, uh, it's not entirely accurate. The term, just very very briefly, the term. Persia and Persian, those are terms that were given by the West, uh, by Europeans to Iran. Well, no, no, let me actually back up a little bit. So ancient ancient Iran, the ancient Iran con- com- was composed of many different uh, tribes and groups and, you know, kingdoms. The Persians were one of them. They, were, they ended up becoming the most dominant. So they conquered things like the Medes and the Elamites and, the, you know, all these other kind of um, kingdoms. Um and so the first Iranian empire, if you will, the Achaemenian empire of the fifth, sixth century BC was a Persian empire. And that was the first Iranian empire that Westerners came into contact with, specifically Greeks. So the Greeks referred, you know, to the Persians. Um, and that stuck throughout European history. It's not inaccurate entirely, but it's um, actually one of the really interesting things about this is actually it goes in reverse as well. Iranians to this day, you know what they call Greeks? Uh, they call them Yunani, which means Ionian. It's the exact same mistake. And, you know, it's the same thing. They, 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 for some reason, we've never stopped calling them Ionians. But it's just as weird, right? It's just as inaccurate. Uh, it's a little bit like referring to the French as Gauls, you know, or as the, as the Italians as Romans. Um, you know, it's just not quite right. So um, Iranians have always called their country Iran. Uh, but in 1935, in 1935, uh, the more nationalistic government of Iran under Reza Shah insisted that outsiders should also call their country Iran. In fact, to the point where he actually instructed the post office to return mail from overseas if it was addressed to Persia. <laughs> uh, so eventually, until eventually people got the idea, got the hang of it. Um, but what I chose to do in the book was to use Persia and Persians for everything before 1935, just because I thought... It was partly a stylistic choice, but also because there were so many institutions, you know, things like the Anglo-Persian Oil Company or the, you know, things like that, that I just thought it would seem weird to go back and forth and confuse people. So that's why I decided to do it. Well, thank you for that, because like, like I mentioned before, we think language is super important. And I, I like that you clarified it as well, right? Like who, who has historically used that word Persian? Uh, has it been used by Iranians themselves or is it something uh, pushed on them from the outside? But one more bit of history before we kind of background history, before we really dig into the weeds here with uh, some of the history of the relationship is I think a lot of people think of Iran today and think of an extremely religious society, uh, specifically Shia Islam. Uh, it's, it's the kind of the, the only country in the world that is an official Shia, Shia state. There are other uh, Muslim countries that have a large Shia populations, including Iraq and Bahrain, but Iran is kind of the center of the Shia-dominated world. But, you know, I wanna know how important has Islam been in Iran's history? Uh, 
of course, it wasn't always part of Iranian history. So I want to know, how did Islam come to Iran to begin with? And what role has what role has Islam played in the in the history of Iran? How has it been viewed by various leaders of Iran? Uh, and I know that's probably a complex and nuanced question, but you know, as as best as you can give us an idea of the role that Islam has played, uh, and I, we do think that's important going forward here. It's a huge, a huge question, a very interesting one, and one that I'm not an expert in. But I mean, briefly, I, you know, Islam came to Iran in the seventh century A.D. So in six thirty seven A.D., that was when. The uh, second caliphate, the Umayyad caliphate, came to power and, and conquered Iran and many, many other parts of the world as well. It really, that was when Islam went way beyond just the Arabian Peninsula. Um, uh, so that's you know, before that, Iran was a, primarily Zoroastrian um, uh, in religion, um, and there's still a very large Zoroastrian community in Iran. Uh, actually, one of the largest in the world. Actually, the largest in the world. Um, you know, this is a tough one because it's. Religion is important in Iran. It's important, and it has been important throughout Iranian history, just as it has been important throughout European history. Christianity has been important throughout European history. You know, uh, before 1800, 1900, it would be very, uh, you guys know well, I mean, if, you, if you're studying European history, it's very hard to separate somehow religion or the church from anything you're talking about. Um, and that's true uh, in, frankly, almost any part of the world. Um, there is a tendency, I think, we have sometimes to go when it comes to the Middle East, because, and this is unfortunate, because it's a product of the, as always, a product of the, the moment we're living in today, that the very limited engagement we seem to have with many with the Middle East often is through this prism of religious terrorism. So we tend to think that this is this part of the world that is so uniquely infused with you know religion, and where religion somehow dominates everything. I mean, it simply doesn't. It doesn't mean that people aren't religious. <laughs> plenty. I mean, you travel in the Middle East, plenty of people are religious, just like there are plenty of people who are religious anywhere in the world, Latin America, Africa, Europe, North America. Um, and it is true, though, that in the Middle East, and especially in Iran today, Iran is an Islamic republic. It had a revolution that explicitly put Islam at the center of its, of its ideology. So it's fair to talk about that. But I think we have to be careful about feeding, feeding everything through that lens. You know, I remember talking to somebody recently who was... A, doing military training uh, in the U.S. military, and, and she was taking a, a class at the, you know, um, military academy or whatever, and, you know, about the Middle East, and it was like, and they start with all the, you know, they start with, like, the caliphs and the pillars of Islam, and, all, and I'm just like, would you dis- discuss any other part of the world like this? I mean, you know, if you were taking a class on, like, Latin American studies, would you start with, like, you know, the the basic tenets of the Catholic Church. I mean, it's relevant. Of course, it could be part of the conversation. Um, Catholicism has played a very important role, even in the politics of Latin America, you know, liberation theology and all the rest of it. But, you know, um, I think we have, I wish sometimes we, we would stop focusing quite so much on the religious aspect of it. Um, short answer, yes, of course, uh, in 1979, when Iran had its revolution, um, one of the part of the ideology of the revolutionaries was this slogan they had, and I, I say it in Persian because it rhymes in Persian. It doesn't rhyme in English. It sounds weird in English, but it's Nashari Nagarbi Jumhuri Islami, which means neither East nor West Islamic Republic. It sounds awful in English, right? But <clears throat> the idea was in the midst of the Cold War, uh, it was a very heartfelt belief of the revolutionaries that, that you know what the hell? It's like a pox on both your houses. We, you know, the problem with this debate between capitalism and, and communism is that they're both materialistic philosophies. They both put uh, materialism at the center of what it means to be human and how to organize human society um, in different ways. 
but fundamentally that's what it's about. And, you know, if you read some of their writings, they'll say, no, what we wanted to do was to put spirituality and religion and God at the center of, and that was a really revolutionary idea, whether you like it or not is, not, is irrelevant. It was a revolutionary idea. That's why the Iranian revolution of 79 was, was really I, I, the last great ideological, ideological revolution of our time. And, you know, that's, that's relevant. But I think if you look at Iran closely today, you'll see that the Islamic Republic has had, to, like all revolutions, has had to figure out ways to exist in the real world uh, and has in many ways done a lot of the things that other countries do, but, but, but frames them within this religion, religious kind of language. But ultimately, it, it creates some weird and interesting um, synergies. Uh, you know, for example, one of the things that people are surprised by, you know, the whole sort of movement towards kind of trans uh, trans transsexual sort of visibility these days is, is very is very become very popular but actually throughout the history of the islamic republic in the last you know you know sex changes were completely okay the religious authorities decided that it was perfectly fine because it's better than being gay so these are the i, I use that as an example as things that are sort of weird and surprising uh when you channel everything through this kind of uh you know kind of religious ideology um, and sort of, so weirdly, like Iran has been quite regressive on kind of homosexual rights, uh, but actually weirdly, weird, paradoxically and perversely ahead of a lot of other countries when it comes to kind of, you know, I mean, the, the state will actually, you know, support and even uh, help subsidize your, your, you know, your uh, transition. So it's, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, what, a, what an interesting nuance that is. And thank, thank you for bringing up the kind of like something that I think often comes through when you study history is kind of like the uniformity of the human experience. I mean, obviously every place is different, but also there's a lot of very common threads that, that exist in, um, in every region when you look at it. Um, but I do want to, to kind of pivot to the relationship now to going really to the, to the book uh, between the United States and Iran. And I think kind of what we've been talking about towards the beginning uh, of this, of this podcast, which is, you know, the past 40 years have been, pretty conflict-ridden between Iran and the United States. But a lot of folks, I think, would be pretty surprised to learn about the mutual admiration between um, Iran and the United States dating back hundreds of years, like you said in, in, you know, in the beginning of the podcast. And you talk about the affinity that many colonial Americans, both prominent and not prominent, developed for Iran in the early 18th century. Can you talk a little bit about that affinity and kind of what explained this affinity? Did this actually result in any actual relationship? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this blew my mind. I'll try my best to be succinct because it's, it's a difficult one to explain in just a few seconds. But uh, I really didn't expect this. You know, the very first American newspapers published in Philadelphia and Boston in the 1720s were obsessed with Iran. <laughs> and, I mean, I just, I, I just, I mean, I was speechless when I came across that. They were 20, 30 percent of the newspapers just taken up with Iran, and not just that, but they were overwhelmingly vocally pro-Iranian. Uh, so what explains this? I mean, to some extent, 1722, there was, Iran was the big news story of the day because uh, it was the collapse of the Persian Empire. One, one of many, I mean, the Persian Empire has been re resurrected many, many times throughout history, but this was the Safavid dynasty that collapsed in 1722 because of rebellions in the east uh, from Afghan warlords. Um, uh, the Mahmoud Otaki rebellion of 1722 that brought down the Persian Empire, the Safavid Empire, which was a, one of the, the last great Persian empires um, um, was the Safavids. And Americans decided that, that the newspaper editors assumed incorrectly that because the Afghans were Sunni and the Iranians were Shia, that the Afghans must have been getting secret help and collusion from the Ottoman Empire, which was also Sunni. 
was the dominant empire of its day. Um, they weren't. It was incorrect, but that didn't matter. The, the, what mattered was the perceptions. And they, and you know, as you might, as I think your readers will know, I mean, when you think of the Ottoman Empire, this was the evil empire of its day for, from the perspective of Christian Europe. Remember that as late as 1683, the Ottomans had been at the gates of Vienna, right? So this is within the lifetimes, lifetime memory of people in the 1720s. And white, white colonial settlers of North America would have seen themselves as Christian Europeans, as British subjects. Uh, and for them, the Ottoman Empire was the evil empire, the, the, the terrible Turk, the barbarous Turk, all this kind of stuff, right? In occupation of Jerusalem, you know, crusades, all this kind of, there was a long history there, right? But they were also aware that the Persians and Ottomans were rivals. Um, and so they liked the Persians better. It was simply the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They were cheering on the Iranians, the Persians, to, to defeat the evil Sunni, you know, uh, uh, Afghans, because they believed, and it was, there were many reasons for this. One was very simple religious, like, oh, they're Sunni, that's the dominant religion. They consider the Shia to be heretics, and they're the minority, so therefore they're a little bit less Muslim, so that's probably good. We like them better for that. Uh, you know, the, the, the real Muslims don't see these guys as Muslim, so that's that's a cool thing, that's a good thing. And you even see them, these early American newspapers published in, by, you know, by Benjamin Franklin in Philadelphia in the 1720s, explaining to American readers the difference between Sunni and Shia Islam. Not very well, but they're explaining and they're trying to, you know, they even sort of say, oh, you know, this is a religious war between Muslims and Persians, which is an interesting way of formulating it, right, as if Persians are somehow less Muslim. But this was a good thing, they liked this. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. They're not in, occupa they're not in occupation of these holy sites. Um, they are this kind of exotic oriental kingdom that's slightly to the east of everything we hate, you know, of these of the Turks, of the Ottomans. I, I call my first chapter East of Eden because of this. They're, they're really idealized. That's where it begins. And that's why I wanted to start there. Because what's just as interesting to me as the history of this relationship is the prehistory of this relationship the preconceived notions that these peoples had of each other before they even came into contact. Because I argue that that remains right the way through. You know, uh, as in the 1970s, I think Americans still look at Iran in this way, as this kind of pro-American kingdom led by this exotic, glamorous Shah and his beautiful wife and whatever, who are like pro-American and who are nothing like the evil Arabs. Uh, who are, you know, socialists or, you know, they're fighting against the Israelis or they're, you know, they're embargoing the oil, you know, whatever. You know, it's East of Eden all over again. You know, it's just, this is, these are the good guys. Yeah, it is interesting, the biblical references you make in the book where you talk about how many, uh, many people in colonial America were obviously deeply religious people, especially when we talk about the Northeast Puritans. And, you know, the one of the references in the Bible uh, to this this area that that is at the time Persia, right? There's not a whole lot of men, uh, mentions of Persia itself, but there are mentions of places like Babylon, which they associate with, well, you know, where the Ottoman Empire was. And, you know, all, all these good things associated with that eastern portion, which becomes Iran, like the the three magi, right, that visit Jesus uh, upon being born. And it is interesting, like, there's this preconceived positive perception of Iran that, you know, it's kind of, as you said, been buried in history. But something, as, as we move forward here, you know, we're, you know, we, we make no bones about we're an anti-imperialist show. And, you know, when we talk about imperialism, we, we live in the United States, we're mostly critical of our own country and our own country's interference in, in other nations. So we tend to think of imperialism as, something that the U.S. does. But reading your book, what I was fascinated by was you know, 
the fact that Iran has a long history of being extremely resentful of foreign interference in their own political processes. And you talk a lot about how long before 1953, long before 1900, in fact, there had been British and Russian historical interference in Iran. And I found that really interesting. And it, when you hear that, it's easy to understand why there's so much resentment over any other power being involved in Iran's affairs today. So can you talk a little bit about the British and Russian relationship and interference in Iran, what kind of methods they used? Uh, and, you know, at the time, in, in, mostly in the 19th century and early 20th century, that, of course, has influence on how the Iran viewed the United States as compared to, say, Britain and Russia. And so can you talk about the Britain and Russian relationship and interference in Iran and describe how that worked? Yeah, sure. No, thank you. It's a great question. It's, uh, so this is interesting. And I don't like to do too much psychohistory, but I do think people often make this point about sort of Iran's collective psychological attitude to external interference. Um, it's a, Iran is, is in this kind of slightly unique position where it was never formally colonized by anyone. I mean, it, it's one of the very, very, very few countries on Earth that has never been colonized or, uh, or occupied by European forces. Um, so in a sense that it's given Iran this kind of great sense of national pride, um, but um, it's also perversely because Iran um, was the subject of a lot of kind of informal interference and influence mongering, um, especially in the 19th century uh, and the early 20th century by, by the British Empire and by the Russians and the Soviets later on. Um, there's a long, it create, it's, I think it's created this kind of long-standing suspicion about um, Western interference, because in a way, there's something about, there's something almost satisfying, obviously not advocating for colonialism or imperialism, but there's something almost perversely satisfying about, you know, as much as that, that experience is difficult, being occupied or, or you know, colonized by a foreign power, about seeing that come to an end in a formal way, those ceremonies that we see, whether the, the Union Jack is lowered, you know, with, with trumpets and so on, you know, and, the, and, then the, and the sort of the colonial governor leaves and hands over power to the local, you know, um, Iran's never had that. You know, what it's had is this long history of informal interference. So there's this, there's this kind of constant suspicion that has <laughs> been created over the years of who's really pulling the strings, you know. Um, and, and there is a long history there of, of bribery, of uh, sort of uh, double dealing, of capitulations agreements. You know, the Russians and the British were very, uh, and they took advantage of, of Iran's weakness in the 19th century to inflict these kinds of very lopsided trading agreements. And then also to start pulling the strings behind the scenes uh, on the Iranian government, with a lot of kind of bribery and kind of coercion and so on that was out of the public eye. Um, and so, but, but that would occasionally get exposed. And so Iranians were very aware of that um, and very suspicious of that. And then this is, yeah, you're right. This is why they became interested in the U.S. in the first place, because in the 1840s, 1850s, 60s, Iran is declining as a power, just like the Ottoman Empire, like a lot of Eastern, Eastern powers, um, and recognizes that it's weaker militarily, politically, in every other way, economically, compared to the West. Uh, the Industrial Revolution hasn't come to Asia in quite the same way, whatever. Uh, they know, like, okay, we need to learn from the West and we want to interact with them and progress in some of the same ways, but not in this coercive, imperialistic way. Wouldn't it be great if there was a country that was kind of like the West, that had some of its advantages, economic, political, some of its kind of, you know, freedoms and so on, but wasn't trying to take advantage of us? Oh, guess what? There is. It's called the United States. 
And that's why they're really drawn to the U.S. in the mid-19th century, because the U.S., as far as they can see, is a country that's recently had a revolution against the British Empire, but also, really importantly, doesn't seem to want to interfere in other countries' affairs. You know, there were Americans living in Iran at the time, Presbyterian missionaries, who were building schools and clinics, but their government wasn't there. There was no embassy, there was no legation. Unlike some of the British missionaries at the time, they didn't seem to be kind of working hand in glove with their government. They were just, they seemed to just kind of be there to help. And, you know, and obviously that's complex and, you know, you know, proselytizing is a sort of, you know, something we can talk about and, you know, whether that's really helping, but, you know, but they were building schools and clinics and teaching literacy and all kinds of things. And they didn't seem to be agents of their government. They weren't, they truly weren't. So that was something that Iranians kind of liked and found really re- refreshing. And so really wanted to start de- cultivating the U.S. as a third force against the more imperial- imperialistic powers. Well, that was a great explanation. And, you know, I was amazed at how many parallels there are between the 19th century kind of you know behind the scenes imperialism that the British and Russians were doing. You know, we always... I always encourage people, including our students, to think of imperialism isn't just, you know, the old-fashioned conquering territory. It's the control of the affairs in a a particular country. So, you know, I think of, like, something like the way the United States still maintains an imperial relationship with, like, the Philippines. You know, it's the – but it's reminded me so much of the way that you talk about how the British and the Russians – controlled the affairs in Iran. They control the natural resources. They have incredible influence on who begets uh, to become leaders. They get, Later on, they have access to, we'll talk about oil, but the access to oil rights. And, you know, it it is so interesting how those parallels worked and that the Iranians were looking to the United States as the anti-imperial power. And, you know, that it just rings as such a different time and a different situation. And continue to think of the U.S. as an anti-imperial power well after the U.S. had probably arguably stopped being an anti-imperial power. This is what's so interesting to me is that, you know, throughout the 20th century, right, I mean, I could give example after example of this, and they're in the book, you know, but, and I don't mean to jump ahead, but, you know, even as late as 19, the early 1950s, right, when Mossadegh is trying to nationalize the Anglo-Iranian oil company and fighting these kind of anti-imperial battles against the, the British, some of the newspapers, like Bakhtar Emruz, which is a very pro-Mossadegh newspaper, very nationalistic newspaper, anti-imperial newspaper. Not a leftist newspaper, but just sort of a liberal nationalist newspaper. You know, when they criticize America, there's this tone of sadness and disappointment rather than anger. It's so interesting. I mean, as late as 1951-52, you know, they're talking about, oh, you know, maybe the, they say things like, oh, the U.S. may... Maybe it's because they're inexperienced. You know, they, haven't, they, they haven't really tasted the... The, the 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 bitter fruit of kind of you know world leadership and so on you know maybe they're being misled by the British you know because this doesn't seem in character with the U.S. like that's how they criticize America this doesn't this doesn't seem in character with them, what we know of America this is like literally a year or two before the CIA literally overthrows the Iranian government <laughs> as late as that they still express their frustrations with the U.S. with a tone of like almost like it's heartbreaking like we, we this doesn't make sense to us like America's not like this. Uh, and that's really, it's amazing how much of an, of a, an afterlife that has. Like, that really remains for a very, very long time with America, with the, with the Iranians. Yeah, and we also we also want to, to um, tackle one other, kind of one other phenomenon that I think uh, both, I think Matt, maybe not, but Matt and I were confused on originally, which is, you know, when, I think when Americans think of Iran, they know the term Shah, and they probably have heard of that. And... Uh, we both assumed that Shah was this kind of like dynastic family passed down hair 
to the throne type of deal where, you know, it's just kind of through the family lineage. And you present that that's not really true and that, you know, different families have held that title and it's changed many times. So we, we wanted to make sure we asked a question um, and, and to hear your thoughts and explanations around the Iranian uh, monarchy, how it's changed over time and how it began to crumble at the turn of the 20th century in favor of constitutionalism. Yeah, uh, no, so this Iran, actually, this is not unique to Iran. Actually, almost every, I'm not aware of a single monarchical uh, country in history that, where the dynasty hasn't changed hands a million times. I mean, that's that happens. There are coups, there are you know, the civil wars, there are uh, people who, who die without leaving an heir uh, or a male heir. You know, I mean, th- this happens all the time. And then there's, there are battles over who gets to be king, you know. And, and, you know, I mean, look at British history. I mean, just in a thousand years and more than two a thousand years of a kind of monarchy, there have been, uh, what, at least eight or nine different dynasties. I mean, from the, you know, the, the, the Normans, the Plantagenets to the, you know, the, whatever, the Wars of the Roses. I mean, hundred, you know, I mean, it's, uh, Lancaster, York, Tudor, Stuart, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, these are not unusual. And Iran is just like that as well. Um, you know, and it's a very, very long monarchical history. I mean, it's had at least, I don't know how many, 20 or 30 different dynasties. So, I mean, um, but the last one was the short, one of the shortest, the Pahlavis uh, came to power in 1926. Um, so I forget your question. Oh, it was about constitutionalism. Uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. Iran's actually had two revolutions in the 20th century. The one that most people know is the one in 1979. But the, the, the first one, in some ways, maybe even the more important one, was the Constitutional Revolution of 1906-1909. Uh, it was actually the first one in Asia, really. Um, it was almost contemporaneous with the Young Turks and the Ottoman Empire, but just slightly earlier, um, which was to simply you know, uh, limit the powers of the, of the monarchy and, and create a, a parliament and a constitution. And that was a very much a, an autochthonous, homegrown kind of movement. Um, and weirdly, finally, this is one of the things that I think really surprises me, people is that uh, at the absolute vanguard of this revolution were the clergy, were the ulama, the, the, the clerics, the religious authorities. Um, but there was a tendency, this is something that makes Iran so different from European history, right? When you think about the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution, it's always the clergy were always on the side of reaction. Uh, they were always on the side of the, of the, you know, of the, of the, of the old order, the old guard. Uh, and of the monarchy, uh, and they went. They were cleared out with the with the old forces, right? But actually, in Iran, it was the opposite. They were the they were the revolutionaries in many cases. They they, they believed from a religious perspective that uh, absolute kingship is actually um, antithetical to Islam. In fact, Ayatollah Khomeini, what's one of many of his writings in the nineteen sixties and seventies, expressly attacked the concept of monarchy. He said there is no monarchy in Islam. Nothing in nothing. Islam is a religion where everyone is supposed to be the same. So this idea that one man should you know, be somehow better than others, is that there's nothing in, in the Quran and, or in Islam you know, that advocates monarchy. This is a pagan institution. Uh, and, you know, in a sense, that's true, because it's an institution that long predates Islam in Iran. I mean, the, the monarchy dates back to, to thousands of years ago, to well before Islam in, in Iran. Uh, so I don't know if I answered your question, but I, I sort of... No, that was great, and it definitely leads into our next question here. But I, I just want to comment on that fact that you hear Iranian revolution, everyone thinks of the 1979 revolution, but the events you describe at the early 20th century were pretty violent. You know, the I think you mentioned that the Iranian parliament was attacked, bombed, if I remember correctly. Uh, and there's just a real period of chaos in Iran for a number of years until this this character that ends up being extremely influential in, in, in Iran, Iranian and American relationships today, the relationship, and that's Reza Shah. And, you know, I, again, I, 
probably very ignorantly, I had assumed that, you know, the Shah dynasty went back hundreds of years, but actually this newest dynasty, the the Pahlavis are relatively new. So who was Reza Shah? Uh, I think Reza Khan was his original name, right? And um, how did he arise to power from somewhat what you describe in the book as pretty modest means, uh, a modest background? And then if you wouldn't mind telling us what was he like when he was in power? Um, and there's some very interesting things uh, about his time in power that I certainly did not know, but definitely affect uh, the relationship today. So, uh, yeah, so who was Reza Khan? Yeah, this is a, it's, a, it's really interesting, right? I mean, yeah, he was from extremely modest means. He was just a soldier uh, in the Cossack Brigade, the sort of Russian-dominated Cossack Brigade of northern Iran. Uh, he was illiterate. He was from the mountains of Mazandaran in the north of uh, Iran. Uh, he was a powerful, good soldier who had risen up through the ranks of the Cossack Brigade. And when the British were uh, leaving uh, Iran at the, in the beginning of the 1920s, they uh, they felt, because they had been in occupation during the First World War, um, they wanted to encourage the idea of a strongman rule in Iran. Now, uh, this is... A complex history, and a lot of people have different ideas about this, and I'm not an expert. And I, people debate this stuff. How much were the, the British influence, instrumental in Reza's rise to power? I, you know, I think it's a mixed picture, and it's not really clear, but um, they did feel that it was probably for the best, the best of the, you know, making the best of a bad situation as they were leaving, because at least if there was a strong man in power in Iran, there was one person they could deal with. And they identified Reza as a, as a possibility, and he... And he uh, quickly with sort of British green light and in many ways uh, overthrew the government at the time, uh, became defense minister initially, uh, or sorry, war minister, because at the time, like the US, uh, there was a war ministry rather than a defense ministry, but, and he seemed just the right man for that. Um, and, uh, you know, somebody else became prime minister, but then within a couple of years, he rose to the rank of prime minister. Uh, and then once he was prime minister, there was a very obvious, there was a very weak king in place, the last Qajar king, the last of the previous dynasty, uh, Ahmad Shah. He was, he was a teenager. He was in poor health. He was really increasingly a figurehead. Uh, Iran's government was very weak and, and, and divided. And um, uh, you know, Ahmad Shah was in Europe getting treatments for his illnesses at the spa, and uh, Reza uh, decided to overthrow the monarchy completely. He actually probably wanted to create a, re a republic with himself as president, but uh, there was a lot of resistance from more conservative forces that you know we should preserve the institution of the monarchy. He was not a big fan of monarchy. He just didn't care about that stuff. He was a really rough, crude, kind of rustic soldier, and he just wasn't interested in all the pomp and circumstance. But he didn't want to be king. But they uh, they amended the constitution and parliament, and they and they handed the throne to him, and he became Shah. Uh, so it was a pretty incredible rise out of nowhere. Um, within a few years, and by 1926, there was a new dynasty, the Pahlavis, uh, and it was he was Shah until 1941, and then his son Mohammad Reza uh, became Shah in 1941, and that was the last Shah of Iran, the one who was overthrown in 1979. To answer your question about some of the characteristics of really both father and son, the Pahlavi dynasty was very much a secularizing dynasty. It was inspired in many ways by Ataturk in in Turkey, in, in well, late Ottoman Empire in Turkey. Um, you know, Reza was not, he was religious, but I think he believed, he was kind of ashamed. Uh, he believed that Islam was associated with backwardness and that it made it held Iran back in the eyes of the West and all the rest of it. So he tried to really turn his back on the role of Islam, which had traditionally had a, a, an important role within government. 
um, you know, as, again, as in many countries, uh, you know, the clergy and the state were, were pretty tightly wound up with each other. But he tried to take away a lot of the powers of the clergy. Uh, a lot of their land, he took a lot of their land away from them, frankly, co-opted it into his own personal estate. Uh, so they didn't like him for that. And he took away a lot of their powers, uh, was very secularizing in his ideology, very typical of kind of the fascist ideology that was common in many parts of the world in the 1920s and 30s, which was to replace traditional kind of religious symbolism or maybe connect it to uh, a kind of worship almost of the state, you know, the importance of the state and of kind of uh, the ancient history and the soul of the state. Uh, so he really kind of played down Islam and played up the ancient history uh, of Iran instead, something that his son continued to do and that gradually over the course of the 20th century really backfired uh, and caused a lot of resentment among the clergy, but eventually also um, when the people rose up against the, uh, the Pahlavi monarchy in 1979, uh, it wasn't hard to see why they explicitly criticized it as a sort of anti-religious monarchy that they wanted to and they wanted to kind of re reintroduce the role of religion yeah the way you describe him in the book it sort of reminds me of as a, as a precursor to some of those secular dictators we saw later in the arab world whether you know uh mubarak or the the assad family uh you know this kind of yes they're secular but they you know there's uh, there's all it's also very much a police state and you you also articulate that this there was kind of a strange relationship between Germany during, as it rose as fascism rose in that country, and Iran at the time. And you know, we don't have to go into it because we didn't include it in the the aforementioned questions. But the role of Iran in World War II is is very strange in that you know there's this fear that they might align with Germany, and if, if, but Iran itself is occupied by the, both the British the Americans and the USSR in World War II. And, you know, that's going to lead us into this period after World War II where, I, you know, Iranian, we already talked about how averse to foreign occupation they were. Now they literally had just been occupied. And you do a great job talking about some of the characteristics of occupation, whether it's the, you know, sexual crimes against Iranian women or, you know, uh, you know, occasionally it, the same stuff we hear today about like American troops in Okinawa, right? It's like uh, occasionally a person will get hit by uh, an American car, um, and of course, th these feelings of of not wanting to be controlled by another power are embodied in the figure that John is going to ask you about. So we have you mentioned the Shah's son, uh, Muhammad Reza Shah. That's correct, right? Um, and who contrasts from his father pretty significantly, you write about. But he's going to butt heads with another figure that John is going to ask you about. Uh, so let's hear more. John, take it away from me. Yeah. You. Yeah. And it, we you know it's it's funny because now we're, we do want to move to these kind of, you, you mentioned in the beginning, these kind of signposted events of the 53 coup and the 79 revolution. Um, and so we did want to, you know, to make sure that we talked about those, those two things. But yeah, so we wanted to ask, about Mohammed Mosaddegh and and why the U.S. and Britain chose to dispose of him or to depose him, basically, like why did they want him out? So, could you give us a brief background around that figure and and kind of the rationale around it? Sure. I mean, again, this is a huge episode, so I mean, I'm not going to do it justice. But um, Mosaddegh was a fascinating figure. He often reminds me when I used to teach this stuff. I always, always tell my students as a way to relate. He reminds me a little bit of Bernie Sanders, if that's not too <laughs> weird of an analogy. He's in his 70s, kind of a very quirky, eccentric kind of guy, like your weird uncle, whatever. But the kids just loved him. I mean, the young people in Iran just loved Mossadegh. You know, my father actually was a, was a young university student at the time and still gets choked up thinking about Mossadegh. I mean, he was a hero to that generation of kind of 
educated middle class liberals in Iran, which is a new, really kind of was a relatively new thing. There had been a sort of traditional middle class of kind of bazaar traders and so on, but this was like a modern middle class um, that were, you know, increasingly professionals, you know, educated, you know, university, uh, you know, lecturers, you know, bank clerks, you know, lawyers, doctors, those, that kind of thing. A more modern middle class that was really itching. Uh, for, in many ways, they were the, the product of Reza Shah's modernization. The people who had had the opportunity to go to university and improve their lives and, and become educated or maybe travel to Europe, whatever. Um, and they came, and then naturally, they wanted more political participation and they really believed in sort of a, sense, a modern sense of nationalism for Iran. The problem the Pahlavis made, it was a classic mistake. That was all great, but then they never gave a channel for these people to actually participate in politics. So they were very much held down. But Mossadegh did. And he was this very popular prime minister who really... Um, very principled guy, really a man of great integrity, who really uh, just stood again and again on these points of principle. Two very basic points of principle, which anyone knows anything about the Middle East knows, are the two things that really uh, turn people on and, and really uh, um, galvanize popular movements always. One is simply democracy and po popular participation and legitimate government and you know, um, uh, an end to kind of dictatorship. And the other is genuine independence from foreign interference in affairs. You know, anytime you have a figure, it's not just Mossad, anytime you have a figure in the Middle East who really stands for both of these things, uh, they always get a big kind of movement around them because these are, these are these anti-imperialist democratic forces, basically, that say, look, our own leaders are corrupt, they're too much, they're, they're, they're the tools of foreign, you know, uh, empire. And Mossad wasn't really a radical. He never attacked the Shah as being a tool of a British imperialism directly. Um, you know, but he believed very strongly that, that basically Iran should control its own oil uh, resources. Iran was by this point making huge amounts of money for the British oil company, the Anglo-Iranian oil company that had had a monopoly in Iran for over 50 years, uh, almost 50 years. Uh, that is AIOC, the Anglo-Iranian oil company, which later became British Petroleum or BP. Um, they had made spectacular profits out of Iran and they had frankly treated Iranians very poorly and Iran had not really been given the shaft. It hadn't been given a fair deal in any of this and people were angry about it. And Mossadegh really channeled that anger. The British government wanted him gone for obvious reasons because he tried to nationalize the oil industry. Uh, he didn't nationalize the oil industry and that was the British considered that to be an illegal act. It was a breach of contract. Uh, from the Iranian perspective, they were willing to negotiate compensation and all the rest of it. But the British said, no, this is simply a an illegal act and they took you know iran to the the hague and so on the un and they kept losing their cases because they didn't have much of a legal case and and uh, Mossadegh had a very principled you know kind of stake a uh, case to make and hugely popular among this young liberal middle class in iran uh and the british were kicked out they actually iran actually broke off relations with the british because the Mossadegh realized that they were actually plotting his overthrow and so the, the, the Brits found themselves in a very difficult position. They were no longer in Iran, uh, able to engage in kind of covert action or operations like that. So they instead had to convince the Americans to do it for them. Uh, and they weren't going to say, help us out to save our oil industry, uh, because frankly, the British and the Americans had had a rivalry over Iran's oil for a long time. So instead, they played the communist card. Uh, and they went to the new incoming Eisenhower administration and John Foster Dulles uh, uh, and convinced him that uh, Mossadegh was somehow flirting with communism, which was absolutely absurd if you know anything about I mean, there was a widespread agreement. I mean, Mossadegh hated communism. Uh, he was a 
you know, old school liberal nationalist, third world, you know, kind of you know, liberationist, but he was not a leftist in that sense, left leaning, but not, you know, in any way uh, communistic. Um, but they managed to destabilize and, and uh, Iran and, and create this impression that Mossadegh was, was uh, his, his government was reliant on communist support um, to stay in power and increasingly created a sort of self-fulfilling situation. Uh, there was a lot of double dealing. There was a lot, a lot of covert action. A lot of you know people. I mean, you know, General Norman Schwarzkopf Senior showing up with sacks of money, uh, literally a million dollars in, in you know of money, you know, to distribute you know, in the slums. And this is all very well documented, you know, by the in the archives. This is not some sort of conspiracy theory. You know, uh, paying off thugs and gangs and street gangs to demonstrate and pretend to be communists supporting Mossadegh, and then show up the next day and pretend to, you know and say how much they love the Shah and down with communism. And just create this kind of very destabilized atmosphere that eventually made it possible for Kermit Roosevelt and the CIA to um, uh, to overthrow uh, Mossadegh with the help of an Iranian general, um, uh, Fazlullah Zahedi, who came in on a tank and declared himself prime minister uh, with the help of the Shah. Well, that was what happened in 1953. And it's a very colorful and interesting story, and I could spend a lot more time on it, but that's the gist of it. Well, that's why people got to read the book. And uh, yeah, I'm just past that point in your book. And it is a fascinating story with a different cast of characters. And like literally Kermit Roosevelt is Teddy Roosevelt's grandson. He plays a major role. Uh, and of course, St- Norman Schwarzkopf is the father of Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf from, from you know, hero, quote unquote, from the, from the Gulf War. Uh, and something else I wanted to comment on is like this... This is really one of the first cases where a leader is overthrown, not even for being a communist, but from allegedly having some communist ties. And we see this again and again. But, uh, uh, you know, we see it literally the next year in Guatemala when they overthrew Arbenz, who was also not a communist, uh, you know, wanted to do some modest land reform. And we see it all around Latin America and around the world uh, throughout the Indonesia, most violently, probably when when uh, Sukarno was overthrown. But, you know, it is amazing how this what they were able to get away with in 1953. But I do want to move us forward because as we creep closer to the the present time, so we have now Mohammad Reza Shah has become the the leader of the country with U.S. support. Uh, You mentioned in the book how he didn't just have U.S. support in overthrowing uh, Mossadegh, but also he had tremendous support from the U.S. while in power. So can you talk about you know, I know it's a lot of, it's what, 25 years the, the Shah was in power. So I want, can you talk about what those 25 years was like? Uh, what was U.S. support like? And how did the way that the Shah rule create the situation where there was going to be this Islamic revolution in 1979? Yeah, the Shah was actually in power for 38 years. Uh, so this is one of the confusion people that get, so he came to power in 1941 when his father was deposed by the occupying forces. Right. right. In 19, it's, uh, I often find, so this is, people often say things like, well, the U.S. brought the Shah to power. No, it's not quite, like, he, he fled the country for a few days in 1953, uh, while, and then while the U.S. actually initially failed to do their coup, and then a few days later they, they succeeded in the coup, so he flew back into power and asserted his power more strongly and started to play down the power of the prime minister uh, after that. So, and then it was another 26 years, 25, 26 years after that to the Iranian revolution. So that, uh, I can actually appreciate the confusion on that. It's, it's pretty easy to, but yeah. So 38 years, uh, his, you know, his first 12 years in power, he, he was a relatively weak king, but after 53, it really started to solidify his, uh, his uh, consolidate his power and gradually crept towards authoritarianism. I don't want to say the Shah was a dictator from day one. He actually tried 
to really liberalize much more than his father had done in his first years. But I, but he, I think in his mind, probably, you know, I'm speculating, he felt after 1953 that I'm done with these, like, you know, giving my prime ministers free reign or, you know, you know, kind of, all this kind of stuff. it's time for me to assert my power, you know. Um, so that happens gradually over the 50s, 60s, 70s. You know, there was a moment in the early 60s where he pushed very hard by John Kennedy to kind of liberalize and reform and, um, I know you haven't, you haven't got to that part of the book yet, but, you know, he's very resistant to do this. Or he does it in certain ways, but doesn't allow political participation, like allows more rights for women or a certain amount of land reform and things like that, but doesn't actually do it in a democratic way. Doesn't doesn't really allow popular participation. So modernizes the country. But at his very core, he's a conservative monarch. Uh, he believes, he likes to think of himself as a progressive monarch in the sense that he's, but his idea of progress is to simply mimic the West is to do things that, that it will win him approval by the West. Oh, let's give votes to women in 1963, for example. Sounds great, and it's going to play well in the West. But in Iran, the feeling is, well, what the hell does it matter if women can vote or not when our elections are, are, <laughs> are sham? When there are no real, there's no real, you know, when these like fake political parties are being created and the, the parliament is just a series of yes-men. Um, you know, that's a kind of insult. Um, you know, his so-called white revolution that brings all these reforms, you know, a lot of the land reform ends up benefiting his cronies. I mean, there isn't a real democratic process on, in, in late Pahlavi Iran, and it gets worse in the 1970s. It gets worse in the 1970s because, to some extent, Iran suddenly finds itself with huge amounts of oil revenue, in, in large part because of the Arab oil embargo and the October War in 1973. Uh, U.S. doesn't observe the boycott. Um, it just gives rhetorical support to the Arab cause. Um, which means they end up profiting off it. You know, there's a fourfold increase in the cost of oil, and the Shah finally gets to do what he's always wanted to do, which is to buy spectacular amounts of, of weaponry. He loves weapons and military buildup. He just loves this stuff. Uh, from early, early, very, very early on, and you can do a Freudian analysis on him if you want. You know, his father was this kind of tough as nails military man, but the Shah was himself was always a bit of a kind of a young dandy and you know his father always said he wasn't good enough for him and, you know he needs to toughen up and you know his, his mother and his sister were always on his you know so he has this he was sent off to the military academy and you know he always had this like fixation with military hardware uh, i don't want to over psychoanalyze him but you know he was constantly in this argument with for example the kennedy administration that said no you need to liberalize and reform that's how you're going to avoid if you don't do that you're going to have the communists coming in the soviets from the north and they're going to destabilize your country and you're going to have a revolution on your hands and he would say, no, you don't understand. What I need is more weapons from the United States. That way I can prevent any kind of Soviet incursion and then don't let, and then let me worry about what I do within my country. Uh, so there's two philosophically different approaches to this, right? Um, so when he was finally freed of all, because you know, in the 50s, Iran was still a developing country, so it was still getting aid from the US and, and anything, you know, it was kind of begging for scraps. But once Iran becomes a really wealthy oil power, the Shah says, well, the hell with it, you know, I can now buy any weapons I want. And, you know, uh, the Nixon administration is the first administration that really gives him free reign. Uh, after 1972, they come and they, they, they visit uh, Iran, and Kissinger sends this famous memo to the Pentagon that says, from now on, all decisions about military uh, procurement should be left up to the Iranian government. Whatever, Basically, give them whatever they want, sell them whatever they want, uh, short of anything nuclear. Uh, and then there's this massive military buildup in the mid-70s, um, really megalomanic kind of uh, military buildup. And he becomes much more of this kind of right-wing military dictator. Um, 
you know, and uh, all of this coincides with a time when there was, because there's so much money coming into Iran, the Shah is constantly building up expectations among his public, saying things like, within 20 years, we're going to surpass Switzerland and France, we're going to be the Switzerland of the Middle East, we're going to be one of the richest countries in the world, our standard, you know, it's the era of the great civilization, you know, people, but people are hungry, and they're not seeing any of this. Because there's suddenly an incredible amount of inequality. Because there's all this, these petrodollars coming into the into Iran and, and and distorting the economy, causing inflation, causing hardship. And the Shah is talking about it like it's just the best time ever, you know. And it is great for the elites, uh, the bourgeoisie of North Tehran, who are profiting, who are doing very well out of all this, and think everything's great. And the Americans who come to Iran and mostly hang out with people like them, who are also the bourgeoisie of North Iran, North Tehran. And who are also not allowed by the Shah's government to go and hang around in the slums of South Tehran. You know, they're, they're followed around by Savak, by Secret Service, and told, no, you know, we're going to you know, present our version of this. And so they think everything is great. They see this country that's prosperous, wealthy, becoming more, more westernized. And these all seem like great things compared to the Arab world, right? Uh, but of course, it's a house of cards because you get more and more resentment from below. This, this, this absolute volcano of resentment that's starting to build up economically, politically, culturally, religiously, in every imaginable way. These kind of traditional um, you know, uh, slum dwellers and rural villagers in Iran that are very religious conservatively, conservative religiously, uh, many of whom are having to come to Tehran to look for jobs because they don't, not, there's nothing going on in the, in, the, in the countryside. And they come to Tehran, they see this like unrecognizable place full of these like people running around in sports cars and miniskirts and going to discos and so on and, and they're doing great and they're just like living in these slums and they're being you know and so they they start to really resent the Shah they really turn to the Ayatollah Khomeini as a kind of religious figure that really speaks to them at the same time there's a lot of resentment from the hard left the left is becoming more radicalized student groups are turning to Maoism and militancy and it's just it's really um, a powder keg from both left and right and there's no middle ground. The, 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 the center doesn't hold because the center should be, the people who really should be holding the middle are those old liberal nationalists, are the old Mossadegh generation. These people that believed in democracy and liberalism and Western values. You know, in a, you know Mossadegh really was a great admirer of the West. He believed in, you know, political parties and grassroots, you know, and like petitions and newspapers and all that kind of stuff. But those, that was all squashed after 1953. And that is really, the Shah was facing three different types of resentment in the 70s, from the, le- from the hard left, from the sort of religious, I don't want to say religious right, because that, that doesn't quite work, but a kind of almost like a, a silent majority of kind of religious conservative resentment. And then from the middle as well, uh, these liberals that felt he was a dictator. And the funny thing is all three of these groups had one thing in common, which is they two things in common. One, they hated the Shah. But two, they also were resentful of the United States for different reasons. Marxists, leftists, you know, are always going to be resentful of the United States. Um, you know, the religious, increasingly the religious conservatives, religious radicals had their own reasons for, you know, because the U.S. represented kind of sinful decadence and all the rest of it. But the liberals, who should have naturally been more pro-American, their resentment was, for, it was about 1953. Their feeling was, you know what? We tried to play by your rules. We did the things that you told us we should be doing. You know, we, we, we thought that if we acted like this kind of, you know, uh, like Democrats, that we would get somewhere. And what happened? The world's greatest democracy overthrew our beloved leader. 
And there was this feeling of like the hell with it. Like, you know, the, the radicalism was much more attractive to people in the 70s because there, there weren't a lot of other options available. They tried democracy. Um, and that was the real tragedy of 1953. There was nowhere for all of this to go but a revolution in a lot of ways. I don't want to say it was inevitable because I don't know. But I mean, that's in short what happened. And that's why it took a kind of anti-American turn. Although, you know, obviously the admission of the Shah to the United States made that even more anti-American. Right. And, you know, we, we obviously have a limited amount of time, but I, again, I recommend you read the book, uh, America and Iran. But even as the Iranian revolution takes place, suddenly the United States is very concerned about, all, you know, the amount of weapons the, uh, Iran has, the alleged nuclear weapons program, you know, that's more complicated. But a lot of these, you know, as far as the nuclear power program, as far as how many arms Iran ends up in possession of once it becomes the Islamic Republic, well, it was the United States giving them all those weapons, giving them that training. Uh, you know, in terms of human rights abuse, we'll get into that in a minute. Well, the Shah secret police, they were torturing people. They were disappearing people, all with the support of the United States. So that is very important to remember. We don't have time to talk about it either. But it's, of course, as soon as the Islamic Revolution takes place, what does the United States do? They arm Saddam Hussein and support his invasion of their country, which was a from what I understand, the most devastating war of the second half of the 20th, or at least the last third of the 20th century. Uh, so all this is really important context. But John is going to move us forward into yeah. a, the more present era because we're running out of time here. But I think it, I think it goes well, right, in, you know, bring it to the present, um, all of this context. And, you know, in the present era, like, like we talked about, <laughs> a strained relationship, if any relationship, between Iran and the United States um, and I, I kind of wanted to combine two ideas. So obviously, you know, the United States has placed sanctions on Iran. And we wanted to definitely make sure we talked about that um, and talked about what that, what that actually looks like for Iranians kind of on the ground, right, for like everyday Iranians. And also, kind of contrary to that, like, why is it important for these nations to cooperate? What interests do they share that um, that's important? So I, I do want to ask just those two ideas, the first about sanctions and the second about why is it important for these nations to, to, um, to cooperate with one another? Yeah, sanctions have been very, very tough for Iranians. And, and, you know, I haven't been to Iran in a few years myself, so, I, you know, I don't, I don't speak from personal experience, but, I mean, it's been really tough for Iranians. I don't think most Americans appreciate just how severe these sanctions are. I mean, there's simply no precedent in modern history for this level, this level of just absolute asphyxiation of an entire uh, population and, and their economy and, and everything. I mean, Iran has, <laughs> it's just unprecedented how much the, their economy and everything has been cut off from the outside world. It's impossible for Iranians to engage in any kind of financial transaction with the outside world. I mean, because all of those have to go through the so-called, uh, what do you call it, the U-turn or whatever, the, the, the loop that in New York, you know, where basically the, the uh, banking transactions go through. So. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter. This is where the U.S. has unprecedented power, you know, where it really can unilaterally cut off, choke off an entire economy without any consent from other, you know, without having to go through the U.N. or anything like that. I mean, it just simply can do that because of its financial muscle. Uh, and they've done that. Um, and it's been very, very painful for Iranians. And I think it's something that I think like I said, most Americans are not aware of how just how severe this has been. Um, life is very tough for Iranians right now uh, because of that. Um, I forgot the second part of the question. It was uh, about... Yeah, sorry. So the, the second part was about why it's important for, you know, these two nations to, to be cooperating as opposed to, you know, levying sanctions and, right. 
throwing accusations of meddling in elections. <laughs> I think that was the latest one for this 2020 election here in the United States. So, yeah, why is it important for these nations to cooperate? Uh, yeah, no, I absolutely. I think the, the funny thing, the ironic thing out of all of this, is that U.S. and Iran actually share a lot of common interests. <laughs> they, they, they have the same basic desire to see stability prevail in Iraq, for example. They have the same, at least officially, the same um, uh, dislike for Sunni radicalism and Sunni jihadism, uh, whether it's in the form of ISIS or Daesh or uh, the Taliban. Um, they, you know, they often end up pursuing some of the same ends, but at odds with each other, which which just seems a shame, you know, because they could just cooperate instead, uh, and instead they're com- they're both competing to def- defeat ISIS. I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, you know, Iran has helped the U.S. in defeating the Taliban. For well, you can call it defeating, but you know, the the, the U- Iran was very helpful to the U.S. right after September 11th in 2002 and three, so secret, secretly, quietly, uh, really helped Iran and Afghanistan. Um, these things have not been built on. It, it's un- unfortunate. There is such an obvious place to start if they want to, uh, you know. And I, I just think that, um, you know, the U.S. Well, both countries are struggling with so many things. And they, they need each other. I mean, yeah, they can they can manage without each other, but they they would be so much better off with each other than you know uh, against each other. Right. Thank you for mentioning the the commonalities that the countries share. And a lot of people don't know this, and we've written about this on our blog, but. Iranians were pouring out sympathy for Americans after September 11th. I believe there's a vigil in a soccer stadium with thousands of people held for the victims of September 11th. And like you said, they they were very cooperative uh, in terms of uh, you know uh, combating ISIS, combat in, in in previous years combating the Taliban and Al Qaeda. Uh, these you know of course Al Qaeda and ISIS especially are far greater threats to Iran than they are to the United States. They have far greater interest in seeing those groups marginalized. And of course they did they were a major part of defeating ISIS and the Sunni insurgency in Iraq during the Iraq war. Uh, what what I want to move us on to as we near our end here uh, you know, something that we always talk about, as, as we said about 10 times so far in the podcast, is language. And, you know, we, again, we're anti-imperialist and we don't hide that fact. But, you know, we also don't want to come off as callous when we talk about people living in Iran. And, and thank you for talking about the sanctions because well, part of the justification for sanctions other than the this alleged nuclear weapons program. Uh, and, of course, you know, there's a... a bunch of accusations about Iran supporting various militant groups around the Middle East. You know, it's never consistently, le- that accusation's never consistently leveled against some of the U.S. allies. That's a whole other issue. But so we do hear a lot about human rights concerns in Iran as another justification to sanction that nation. And of course, this has tremendous effects on the civilian population. So I always struggle with how to talk about this because like I said, I don't want to come off as callous by kind of ignoring repression within Iran. But like I said, it does seem like coming from the U.S., coming from specific actors in the U.S., you know, neoconservatives in particular, it doesn't seem like it's genuine concern for human rights abuses or repression. It seems like it's select. It's something that's selectively being weaponized by c- cynical U.S. officials to discipline a disobedient government. Well, like I said, totally ignoring uh, the nations that are allies of us, uh, Saudi Arabia, for example, uh, their abuses. So how do you personally talk about the human rights abuses in Iran, the repression that, like all governments, uh, inflict on their population? Uh, 
without empowering a pro-war narrative uh, by officials in the U.S., officials in Israel? Because it is a, a, a tricky subject to talk about. I, I actually lost you for quite a while there. I don't know if you know, but I, so I missed almost the entirety of that question. But I think I know what the question you're asking. I can sum it up about. much quicker than, than I just said it. So talking about human rights abuses in Iran, you know, all governments uh, have some level of re repression. But how do we talk about repression in Iran to the degree that it exists without empowering people who are cynically using those alleged human rights abuses? Uh, you know, I'm thinking of neoconservatives in the U.S., the Likud Party in Israel, people who want to weaponize human rights to achieve a goal uh, that will, of course, inevitably hurt people far more than the existing government in Iran. Of course, I mean war. Yeah, or regime change. It doesn't have to. I, mean, I don't think war has actually ever really seriously been on the table. But but I, I understand the question. I agree with you. Um, I think that, um, yeah, this is a really tough one because I, and I think it's something that a lot of Iran experts in the U.S. really struggle with because you can't win. No matter any time you try to wade into these waters, people just get very upset and attack you from all sides. I avoid it because, frankly, as a historian, you know, it's not really I don't want to get into the politics of human rights. It's not, I'm not an expert in that, you know. Um, Obviously, Iran has all kinds of human rights, you know, uh, issues. There's no question about that. Um, and then there's no question, as you say correctly, that many of America's much, much closer allies have pretty bad human rights. Uh, really bad. Let's put it that way. Um, I think uh, it is. It's very tough to talk about. I agree with you. Um, here are the couple of things I would say that I know a lot of people won't like. One of them is if you really care about human rights in Iran, there is no greater human rights emergency in Iran than the sanctions. Uh, there is nothing that is hurting the Iranian people more than sanctions in terms of depriving them of their basic human rights, their right to be you know, free of poverty and, and, and suffering, um, their right to be able to like, you know, send their, their kids abroad to, you know, study at university or to visit their family or to, you know, whatever it might be, travel bans, things like that. The other thing I would say is, you know, um, and that's not, to, that's not to play down, you know, of course, Iran's own government's repression. There, it can be, government can be very repressive. I don't think we have to have any illusions about that. Um, I do think, and I think you'll probably like this answer, <laughs> I do think that empire is a thing uh, that you have to talk about. Uh, that imperialism is a, is a reality. Whether you know, and I don't like to get overly ideological um, because I don't view the U.S. as like the root of all evil or anything like that. But I do think that um, the context matters. It doesn't ex excuse or justify human rights violations. But when you have a system of government, now you can. I want to emphasize this. You can have all the problems you want about the Islamic Republic. You can say that the problem begins with the Islamic Republic, if you want, and say that the whole revolution—that's the problem. You know that it took this anti-American turn. You know, and so it's it has only itself to blame for its isolation. That's fine. I mean, I, I would argue that there's also a historical context there. Um, but okay. Um, but once that's in power, once that system is in power and there is this now institutionalized antagonism with the United States and there is no relationship with the U.S. And this country is now this new system of government has been in place and, and pursues a genuinely independent foreign policy that puts it at loggerheads with the U.S. Then naturally you have, you know, the U.S. wanting to undermine that system of government as much as it humanly wants to now. Where does that leave the Islamic Republic? Well, they now have a superpower that is constantly trying to undermine them. 
And that makes, and again, it's not to justify anything, but that does make you know, it a little bit more difficult for, author- I think just logically, for authorities in Tehran to suddenly maintain a human rights atmosphere that is like Sweden. Because what's going to happen if you, if, you know, if you have, where do you begin? Like, are you going to suddenly open up and liberalize? Well, sure. I mean, I think we'd all like that. But you know, the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to have, there are people, there are, the U.S. has no shortage of agents and, you know, uh, uh, kind of, you know, people that work hand in glove with it, Iranians, uh, who will happily take advantage of those rights to destabilize and overthrow the Iranian government and to bring about regime change. Again, emphasize, what do you want to emphasize? That doesn't justify human rights abuse. There's a universal imperative of human rights that I, I agree with and subscribe to. As a historian, my role is to explain, not to justify. You know, there are things that sometimes we don't like, and we have two choices about how we can either just simply condemn, which I think we should when it happened, that's fine, that's perfectly legitimate. But I think we also have an obligation to understand uh, why is it like this? Uh, is it just because these people are so evil and monstrous that they just enjoy torturing people? I mean, yeah, maybe. Sure, you're entitled to think that. Uh, that may be some of it. I mean, human beings have dark sides to them, for sure. But I do think that um, there is also a larger context, which is uh, what do you do with people who, you know, I mean, espionage is a reality. There, mm-hmm. there are people in Iran who are spies. I mean, and that's, that doesn't mean that everybody who gets accused of being a spy in Iran is actually a spy. Uh, and, you know, there are issues with the Iranian judiciary, for sure. Um, I just think that that is the context. And I think you have to put this stuff into that context. Again, you know, um, I don't want to take anything away. And I also think any kind of human rights progress that is made should be made within, should be made by the Iranian people within Iran, not by an Iranian diaspora sitting in Los Angeles. I think that's important. Not by people who haven't been to Iran in 40 years. Uh, that I, I think is relevant. That was well said. And John, I know you want to close this out, but I think that's a really good point that you're pointing out that we need to analyze the, as people living in the greatest superpower the world has ever seen. We need to understand that our imperialism, our actions, our interventions in these countries, of course, is going to play into those countries' own behavior, right? And you, you mentioned Iran can't exactly have a democracy and human rights like Sweden because they are under threat of constant intervention. Uh, and we've talked about this with other countries like Cuba, with the United States constantly trying to intervene, Venezuela. Like, what if those countries did liberalize entirely and allowed complete uh, freedom of expression, freedom of the press. Well, you know, look what they did in Iran in 1953, hiring hiring newspapers to print anti-government articles. You know, governments have a need to survive. And, And another point you raised as well is that by constantly interfering in Iran's internal affairs, we are empowering the most hardline figures in Iran. I mean, and all you need to do to understand that is, you know, we're fortunate in this country that we haven't really been subject to major attacks. But the times that we have, you know, September 11th, Pearl Harbor, the country went into some pretty severe repression of its own population after that, right? And these are, I don't mean to trivialize them, and I've said this before, these are by comparison to what the United States has inflicted in its interventions in other countries, relatively minor inter, uh, events. And, you know, look what the United States does after 9-11, Patriot Act, uh, the surveillance, uh, the uh, warrantless wiretapping. So just these are important things to keep in mind when we look at the context of the situation. Yeah, if the United States cares about human rights in Iran, really cares about human rights in Iran, the quickest way to make human rights situation in Iran worse 
is to constantly attack uh, Iran and make Iran Iranians feel like they're under attack from the United States because that will empower those elements in Iran that want to repress people's human rights. We see that again and again. That doesn't mean that that, that doing the opposite will necessarily bring about some sort of human rights nirvana. Uh, you know, it may not. But that, but it, what it will do is create the space for Iranians to begin having that conversation themselves, uh, ra- rather than making even those elements in Iran that want to bring around human rights feel reluctant to do that because they don't want to be tools of uh, the United States. I mean, right. that's, it's as simple as that. Yeah, yeah, and again, the con- all of the context around this this issue of human rights and the, the use of human rights abuses as as a function of like going to intervene is something that. You know, we we talk a lot about, and again, it's kind of like the the whole point of the podcast in the context of empire, right? The context around these types of things. Um, and I, I did want to to close on uh, on a question, kind of looking looking at regular um, folks living in Iran, and also kind of their hopes for the future. And I think you kind of mentioned it there in that last response um, a little bit, but you know, fairly unique in that you write about. Um, the experience of actual Iranians. So uh, how do folks living in Iran feel about the United States? And what do you gather, if you can even speak on it, like their hopes for the future? And if you can't, what is your own personal hopes for the future of Iran? What do Iranians think about the United States is a very tough question because it depends on which Iranians. I mean, Iran, like most countries, is you know, it's very diverse. I mean, people have very, very different views. Um, you, know, you have people who are ideologically anti-American, um, but the overwhelming majority. Here's what I will say: every single American who goes to Iran, without exception, comes back absolutely floored by the reception they get. Iranians, for the most part, are very, very welcoming towards Americans themselves. Um, even the government, even the Islamic Republic, often will make the, the rhetoric that, that they'll, they'll, they'll say rhetorically, we don't have a problem with the American people, we have a problem with American policy. And by the way, the United States says this as well, but we stand with the Iranian people against their evil government. You know, there's a lot of that kind of stuff. Uh, both countries engage in that in that kind of rhetoric. Um, you know, uh, but it's what's, you know, but what's extraordinary, I think, the, 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 I always encourage Americans to go to Iran because it's not actually as, as scary as you might think. In fact, if anything, it's probably the safest place you can go in the Middle East because when you have a government you have a, that's institutionally anti-American, the people tend to be less anti-American. Um, it's usually in the countries that are sort of where the government is seen as being a sort of uh, instrument of American foreign policy, places like Egypt or Pakistan, where people where you have these like this seething, festering anti-Americanism among the population, the kind of frustrated population, where you're more likely to get killed in a militant attack. That's just not going to happen in Iran. In Iran. <laughs> um, you know, uh, people are always amazed at how, how much hospitality they see and how excited people are to see Americans because it's so rare, you know, and they're just so happy to see you. Um, uh, so I think you'd be surprised. Uh, but I think that over, on the whole, you know, the population is feels positively towards American people, but um, not uniformly, maybe, but mostly. Uh, when it comes to the policy, it's a mixed picture. It depends on who you talk to. Yeah, and what, what are your personal hopes for the future of Iran? For Iran or for U.S.-Iran relations? Well, sorry, yes. For, in specific, the relations between um, the United States and Iran. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I'm very, look, I'm not optimistic. I don't think, I just, I'm just really not, but I am idealistic. You know, I do really believe that there's no reason for things to be like this. When you look at the long history, you see that for the overwhelming majority of this history, it just has not been characterized by hostility. So, you know, there's no, 
you know, I've often felt that you know one of the best things that we could do right now is, for, is to go back to that first disagreement that the U.S. and Iran ever had in the 1850s, when the Iran was trying to get the U.S. more involved in its affairs, and the U.S. was saying, "No, we don't want to get, we don't want it's none of our business." You know, that was the first disagreement the two countries ever had. You know, Iran said, "Oh, we want to buy American warships and we want to fly the stars and stripes from our, you know, Persian merchant shipping in the Persian Gulf to send a message to the British and the Russians." Um, and the U.S. of course said, "No, no, no entangling alliances. We don't want to get involved." You know, and um, it's just so amazing to think that that's that's where it started, and that's so that's 180 degrees from today, right? Um, you know, I'm not really naive. I don't think it's not 1850. We're not going to go back to that kind of disagreement. But what if we channeled a bit of that spirit? You know, what if Iran actually said, look, we're facing pressures from the Israelis and the Saudis, just like we faced from the British and the Russians in the 19th century, and, and we looked for an American protector or an American umbrella, then, why, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if Iran took a rabbit out of its hat and actually suddenly said, hey, guess what, we have a better relationship with the United States now, that they can kind of wave in the faces of the Israelis and the Saudis. Um, I, that goes against every part of Iran's, of the Islamic Republic's DNA, of course, but... So I don't expect that to happen. But the same thing. What if the U.S. said, "No, we don't want to interfere in Iran's affairs. We respect, you know, the Iranian revolution." As Ronald Reagan said, actually, in 1986, the Iranian Revolution is a fact of history. Uh, you know, and we don't want to over overturn. Uh, we don't. We don't want to interfere. Uh, what if we? You know, again, I don't expect that to, to come about either, because that goes against so much of American foreign policy right now. But. Those would be two really big surprise gestures that would really turn the whole story upside down. And, you know, again, I don't expect that to happen. But as a historian, you know, I can dare to dream and I can, I can bring that kind of big picture narrative to this. I think, I, you know, that's something that I'll feel good about is that like, hey, let's remember that it hasn't always been like this. In fact, in many ways, at some point, it was the complete opposite uh, of where we are now. Right. And you bring up the point that you've actually talked to Iranians about these issues. And, you know, that's so important to get actual voices from Iran to speak on these issues, because if not, you're left to both like State Department, CIA propaganda. Um, you know, we have a variety of interests that have that have a motivation to see regime change in Iran. Uh, we even have our own media. You know, there's that silly movie from the 80s or 90s, uh, Not Without My Daughter, which is basically, you know, just portrays Iran, Iranians as these religious fanatics who want to just have a desire to hurt Americans. And, you know, we have to even, you know, there's all kinds of propaganda about Iranians hate Jews. And, you know, of course, that story is a lot more complex. You've written about it. Trita Parsi's written about this very interesting relationship that Iran and the United States and Israel have all had. So I advise people to read people like like John and like Trita Parsi and, and listen to Iranians rather than just this simple narrative uh, that we get from some of our own U.S. officials. Yes, and, and unfortunately with that, we are out of time. But again, we were so thankful to talk to Dr. John Gazvinian, historian, executive director of the Middle East Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Check out his newest book, America and Iran, A History from 1720 to the Present. John, thank you so much for taking some time this evening to speak with us. We really appreciate it. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. I hope it's been enjoyable for your listeners as well. Thank you for taking the time to invite me to the show.